The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Well, good morning, chapel family. Ooh, I'm hot today. Yeah. Huh? Oh. Hey, baby, did you hear that? Where are you at, baby? Yeah, that's right. Uh, welcome. If you're new, my name is Ryan, and I'm your pastor. I'm excited that you are here. Christmas is upon us. Is anyone in here, by a show of hands, do we have any Grinches in the house, self-proclaimed Grinches? Okay, so like four or five of you, someone's pointing at me. I'm not a Grinch, um, but I, I do find that uh, Christmas can be taxing. Christmas can be exhausting. Christmas can take us through the gamut of emotions. Every year, I gain an average of 5 to 15 pounds from November to December. And I know you're thinking, like, no, that can't be true. I'm not, this is not an exaggeration. The amount that I eat, thankfully God gave me this extra long body, so I just hide it everywhere. I put some of my ankles, put, put a bunch of my cheeks because I'm half Asian. That's where all my, my meat goes, you know. But uh, it, Christmas is one of those interesting, interesting holidays because, you, you know, Jesus wasn't actually born anywhere near, most likely, December 25th. This was actually a pagan holiday, the winter solstice, and the Christians hijacked it. The Christians took it and said, we're going to take this and celebrate the birth of the Messiah on this day. And then the weirdest thing happened, commercialism and capitalism swelled up in America, and then they hijacked Christmas back from Christians. I mean, we still talk about Jesus, but when you go to a store and you're checking out in line, and you say to the lady at Target, Merry Christmas, she will say... Happy holidays. And I, I love to do this just because I'm a jerk. I say, which holiday are you wishing me a happy one of? I need to know, am, am I dealing with somebody that actually believes in Christmas? Or are you doing some Christana Kwanzaa thing? Are you Hanukkah purely? Because I need to know if I need to lead you to Jesus or love you like, how does this work? Christmas. It's a time where things can go very, very right or very, very wrong. Now, this is probably too fresh of a wound, but we're in the book of Ezra this morning. And if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, the, the Bible story goes like this. Creation, Abraham, Moses, slavery in Egypt, they get freed, they get out, they're going to the promised land, they get to the promised land, this land that God was going to give to them. Then they want a king, the judges weren't enough. So God gives them a king, and he ends up being a really, really bad king. So they get another king named David, who slays the giant, and then another king named Solomon, who is the original player, 700 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, this is the track record of God's people. And then the kingdom splits, and they start doing things that go against God's law. So all of a sudden, the kings from the surrounding areas rise up in power, and they move in and attack. You've heard of some of these characters if you've been paying attention to pop culture, like a person named Xerxes. You know Xerxes, Leonidas 300, this is Sparta. Anybody with me? Okay, you guys are much holier than I am. I saw the movie, whatever. You guys are Christians. I'm still working on it. Okay, but, but Xerxes, Darius, Cyrus, these are the kings that are around this time. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Daniel in the lion's den, they came in and they swept the Israelites out. And these kings were smart. In order to conquer a land, they would not just 
wipe everyone out because that would wipe out labor force. That would wipe out people. So they would pick up communities and they would disperse them across the entire empire so that they could no longer band together, so that they could no longer form a rebellion with their peers. They would take this number of Jewish people and send them over here, and they'd take this country and send them over here, so everyone was divided. And this is called the captivity. And these Jewish people were enslaved, and their temple was destroyed. And for you and I, it's, it's not quite the same when we think of temple being destroyed. The temple was the hub of their worship. The temple was the place where they connected with God. The temple was the center of their community, their faith, their family life. And these kings tore it to the ground. This temple that Solomon had built with gold that God had poured into Israel during the good times had now been burned to the ground. They had now taken all of the resources out, and it was a trash heap. This morning's passage is a flyover of the book of Ezra, when at last God says, I am going to let my people go back and rebuild from the rubble. I am going to open doors, and God changed a king's heart, softened a king's heart so that the king said it's time for the Israelites to go back and rebuild the rubble heap. And this account of Ezra is part one of two. Ezra and Nehemiah are combination books. You should not ever read one without reading the other because they go together like Oreos and the little filling. So make sure that when you are reading your Bible this week, uh, if you did not read Ezra, don't just jump right into Nehemiah. Read through Ezra and then jump into Nehemiah after that. So what we're going to do today is we're going to pray. I'm going to read the passage at the very end of Ezra, and then we're going to fly over the books. Father, this morning I ask that your spirit would flood this place, that you would give us tender hearts to see our own sin and see areas where our life has been torn to the ground and that you would help us learn and see and savor Jesus, the great rebuilder of lives, the great restorer of brokenness. As we fly over the book of Ezra, I pray that we would not just learn practical tips for how to rebuild our faith, or build our faith up, but that we would that we would see you so clearly that our hearts would be lit on fire to live for you, to serve you, and to love you. That you would burn at the center of all we do and not just be an add-on for the Christmas season. God, open our eyes to see your word and our ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to be reading from Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. It'll be on the screen if you do not own a Bible. This is Ezra at the end of his book. This is Ezra after getting the temple rebuilt. This is Ezra now after having called the Israelites back and Ezra seeing their sin. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, A very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. 
and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and Israelites take the oath that they would do as they had said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God, went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliasib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Ezra is a prophet. Ezra is mourning over the brokenness. But to get to the brokenness, we have to understand the journey that got him here and the hard work that he had to put in. In the middle of five, the 500 BCs, Ezra was commissioned to go back to rebuild. To rebuild a place that was once filled with gold and opulence. To rebuild a place that was once filled with holiness and beauty. To rebuild a place where the very presence of God sat and foreign kings tore it down. When Ezra went in, he gives us a blueprint. Ezra and Nehemiah give us a blueprint for not only how to rebuild this temple, but we don't, we don't live in temples anymore. We don't have temples. If this building crumbles to the ground because of an earthquake or because of a sinkhole, sorry, we're in Florida. If this building goes to the ground, we, we rebuild, right? You patch up the sinkhole, you blame Mosaic, you move on with your life. But this temple for them was everything. Now, Ezra gives us this blueprint that I want us to lay on the grid of our lives because here's what he did. He showed up to a pile, a rubble pile, destruction. And the first thing that he does, and this is the flyby, we're going to go pretty quickly here. He goes to the altar and he rebuilds the altar where the sacrifices would take place. Now, this temple would have had walls, courtyards, temple buildings, but he goes right to the altar. And he wants to rebuild the place where people go to have their sins atoned for with God. And here's the catch for you and I. If you want to rebuild your life or if you are raising children, you do not start with the exterior parts. And I know that that's contrary to a lot of what we're taught in our culture. Because if you want to uh, raise the, the look and the value of your house, what can you do? You can go on Pinterest and just type in curb appeal. And it doesn't matter if the, the drywall in your house is rotting. It doesn't matter if you pick the most horrendous color of salmon paint. Your curb appeal, man, that gets it going. And right now I'm wrestling with this thing, and, and I shared with you some of my adventures last week of putting up Christmas lights in my fear of heights. I've got Christmas lights on the first level of my house. My wife desperately wants them on the second level. And I went and I got a ladder, and it was just like this much too short. And I couldn't do it. But this morning I came downstairs and last night my Christmas tree got in a fight with gravity and lost. And my wife had been collecting ornaments for 10 years. We bought them from all over California on Christmas vacations. Uh, I've never seen her as, as sad as I've, I've seen her this morning. She's here, so just pray for her. Don't make eye contact. Just, just pray. I'm serious, man. But on the way to chapel this morning, I said, God, I need your strength climb up on my stinking roof today and put up some stinking Christmas lights on that second story. So if I do this and it goes well, she'll be very happy. If I die, well, she'll get a lot of money, so she might be happy too. But, but, but I, I'm just trying to figure out how to rebuild a little piece of my home this morning that got crushed. Some of you are trying to figure out how to rebuild your life, whether it's from illness or financial ruin or relationship has gone completely awry. 
Here's my first plea with you. Do not start building up the exterior facade. Start with the altar. The Old Testament, they would bring their animals to the altar to sacrifice for their sin. Now in Christ, you, gotta, you have to get Jesus at the center. Before you stop, now hear me out. Before you stop, if you're new to this, the faith, this might sound weird to you, or if you're old to the faith, you might be offended. Before you start cleaning up your cussing and your drinking and your cigars and all of those things, get to the center of your life and say, is Jesus burning bright at the center? Because if he's not at the center, if you don't build your altar, your life around Christ, then the exterior stuff is all glitz and glam. The exterior stuff doesn't really matter if the inside is hollow. Jesus had the harshest words for religious people who had great exteriors. They followed every rule. They were the people who would only date within their little pool. They didn't say the wrong words. They, they gave all the right amounts of money. But God said, Jesus told them, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're nice on the outside, but dead on the inside. He said, you're like a dirty cup. You're, you're clean on the outside. You clean this cup. You get it all good, but you don't even pay attention to the inside. I, I had a cooler recently that was used for Thanksgiving, and I didn't realize that we had, we had set it up for drinks with my family over on the patio. We had orange juice and kids drinks and water bottles. Well, one of my children had opened up a Simply Orange Juice and dumped the whole thing in there and then closed it. But I thought this whole time, like, oh, yeah, there might be some drinks in there, but it's just melted ice. So it sat there for a week and a week and a half, like right around a couple days ago, and I opened it up, and I had some sort of weird foul orange vodka-scented thing going on in there with spots of mold and disgust. The cooler looks the same. I closed it again. I said, I'm going to let someone else find this that's an adult. And then as I walked away, I thought, this probably isn't a good idea. So I took it out, poured it out. I'm sure it's going, so here's my logic. This is how bad theology logic is when it comes to horticulture. I thought, well, it's a citrus and it's water. So I'm going to pour this on my grapefruit tree that didn't produce very well this year and see what it does. So either I'm going to have amazing grapefruit next year or I'm going to have no tree next year. But, but when I cleaned out the cooler, man, I had, I had to scrub that thing out. I got some bleachy stuff. I rinsed it, poured it, rinsed it, poured it, scrubbed it, got out my car wash sponge. At one point, I got out the scotch bright. It was a lot of work. But now it's clean inside and out. Some of us here, we're, we're only concerned with what other people think of us because that's where we get our identity and that's where we get our significance. So we don't even worry about the interior part of the cup. And some of us here have been harboring sin that we know is there. And you just say, well, it's just a little bit. Like if this is my life, if I put Jesus in the middle, he's going to clean everything out. So I'm just going to have Jesus on the outside. I'm going to look the part, play the part, carry on my Bible. And if you really want to do that, I'll give you a tip. Here's what you do. You roll up your Bible in a piece of rope Attach it to your trailer hitch and just drive around Fishhawk with it for a little while and it'll get all worn out. Spill some coffee on it. Maybe, maybe get some Visine drips so it looks like you've cried on a, a couple pages. Don't put Visine drips on the wrong pages though. That'll be weird, right? Someone's reading your Bible 100 years from now and they'll be like, wow, this person really teared up when Saul peed on the wall of the cave. So you gotta be, you gotta be creative on how you fake your Christianity, Okay? You just got to be creative. But, but if you want to rebuild your life around Christ, start with the altar. Start with the cross and say, is this cross of Christ central to all that I do? Or have I been so focused on cleaning the outside that the inside is hollow 
Because after you start on the inside, it goes out. It's, it just keeps going. It goes from the, the inside, and they're rebuilding it. And that's good. But then all of a sudden, what happens? Before they get to the temple, they get adversaries. They lay the foundation. They worship with song. And in case you're wondering why we sing, it's all over the Bible. You build the altar. You get it set up. You send your life on Jesus. You sing. God loves singing. God loves beautiful things. And that's all over this book of Ezra as well. They laid the foundation. They're building the temple. The outer area of the temple gets rebuilt. And then adversaries come. Man, oh man, do I hate adversaries. My adversary this morning, obviously, is gravity and the Christmas tree. Some of us are facing some mega adversaries. In chapter 4, the people come against Ezra And the first group of people that came against Ezra were not outsiders, but insiders. They were people that during the shuffle, when the Babylonians took took over, they had shuffled some people into Israel. And these people said, well, hey, there's a temple thing. There's a religious structure. We We should take their religion and adopt it. And they said, can we help rebuild? Because we love your God now, or we serve your God now, rather. Can we help rebuild? And Ezra said, no, this is a task that God has given his people. You're you're worshiping because you're in the land but you're not worshiping because you're part of God's people. So they, they said, no, we don't want your help. And the adversaries, the people that started right on the outside, they started writing letters. Nowadays we call that blogging. And they started trying to block the temple. And they wrote a letter to the new king. And they said, hey, these guys are doing this. You don't want this to happen. They're going to set up a power structure again. Now for, for you and I, adversaries come in many, many forms. But most often, adversaries are going to come from people that are in our circle. Because if people are far out of our circles, we don't really care if they're against us. It is far easier to fight somebody that we have no emotional attachment to, that we have no affinity for. It is very difficult when our adversary is within our extended families or your neighbor. It's very hard when your adversary is someone close that you can't escape from. You know that rotten, rotten neighbor. Right now, I love all my neighbors. Praise God. I prayed. I prayed when, I, when we bought our house, when the houses went up for sale and rent around us. I prayed, God, bring in people that aren't crazy. Bring in people that aren't going to damage my children. Well, that prayer got half answered. But, but we've all known those horror stories of neighbors, right? Bad neighbors that complain about everything, that tear and poke your life away. I mean, you guys, we're in fish hawk. There's a page dedicated to neighbors attacking each other here. Did you not know that? It's called the Fishhawk Area Neighborhood Page. And if you go on there and you like to use bad words, they made one just for you called the Uncensored Page. But it's the the tearing down and the adversarial battles. Sometimes the adversaries that come in, they'll stop you from doing what God has called you to do. Because they see you doing something great. But they don't want to do that. So they'll do whatever they can to pause you, to tear you down, to prevent you from moving forward. This happens every um, January. We have the exercise fiends that come. Some of you guys are so good, you exercise year-round. I'm one of the January to February exercisers. I hit it hard, and then I hit pie hard the rest of the year. Now, the exercise people, they're, they're so encouraging. I mean, they post pictures, they do all these quotes online to remind me uh, that I'm lazy. They talk about how you've never regretted an exercise. 
Like you've never finished an exercise and said, oh, I, I wish I would have never done that, which is totally untrue. I say that all the time when I exercise. But, but one of the things with exercise is that if you don't have people supporting you, it's one of the easiest things for me in the world to stop. When I want to make my life better in any area, whether it's nutrition, fitness, parenting, spirituality, people that are at the mediocre level don't want you to rise above. No matter what it is, if it's at work, they don't want you to rise above because if you shine more brightly, then they look dim. Now, this isn't a competition as to who can be the best, but in your spiritual life, the goal is to have the altar at the center and adversaries will come. Battles will come. The, the, the insanity of the things going on just at the chapel in the last two-week period has blown my mind. And I was hesitant to share this because then I thought, well, if I share this, everyone's going to be like, I ain't going there no more. But I thought it was, you know, t- tragic and amazing that in one day I get a text message that someone's going to the hospital because they're bleeding and they're, they're going to have to go to the emergency surgery, and they're not going to make it to their original surgery date. And then I get a message saying that, okay, now a, a woman who's 27 weeks pregnant, her amniotic sac is leaking fluids, and she's going to have to be hospitalized for the rest of her pregnancy. And, and that's just the, the very top of this problem of, of things going on. Because we are pressing into Jesus. So, so it's, it's tragic that, that Jared has a, a tumor in his brain, that Charles has a tumor in his stomach, that Laura was leaking amniotic fluid and was going to have to be in the hospital from 27 weeks to the end of her pregnancy, that, that the people who lead guest services, Ken and Lori, they, they've, they've gone through a tough year, and Angie, who was our, our greeter person, has had a difficult time going through family stuff, and there's m- story after story after story. The year that I got hired, Donna had had a, a stroke. I mean, it's crazy. Why does all this stuff happen? Because adversaries will come. Whether they're spiritual adversaries, flesh and blood adversaries, when you press to do something great, darkness presses back. But darkness cannot win. So, when you want to overcome your adversaries, deal with your internal battles first. Remember the cross, and then be part of a community Because without others around us, without people to lean on, this life gets very, very, very difficult. And I know some of you think, I don't want to lean on others because then they'll see how dirty my life is on the inside. The secret is is that we're actually all restoration projects. We're all learning what it means to put the altar on the inside. We're all being cleaned on the inside. So it's freeing to let your sins be on the loose. Because here's what happens when you put everything on the table. You start taking away your adversary's ammunition against you. I've shared this before. The thing that I love doing in marital arguments is that I start, I start apologizing and repenting, and then I, I do it in such a way that I take all the bullets and ammo away from the person who is attacking me, which not just in marriage, but in life in general. So if someone comes up to me, for example, and says, Brian, you're prideful. I usually say way more than you even know. I'm I'm so much more worse. If I could tell you the depths of my sin, you would have no idea. Because here's what they were doing. They were pulling out a gun to shoot my soul, and I just gave them a rocket and said, that rocket can't do anything. Jesus still loves me. So I could could take all the the bullets out of your thing. Or if they say, hey, uh, Ryan, you 
you're, you come off this way or you're judgmental, you're this. And I tell them, you're, I'm probably even more judgmental than you know. Because I went to seminary. They taught me how to judge professionally. I, I married a Baptist preacher's daughter. I mean, Baptists are like the Yodas of judging. I know judging. But I tell people, you, you can tell me what I am, but I'm worse than you think, and Jesus loves me more than you could imagine. That's where you start defeating your adversaries, when you can take an honest assessment of who you are internally and what Jesus has done for you. In chapter 6, the temple gets finished. When the temple is finished, they celebrate Passover. Passover was that Exodus thing that was instituted where the spirit of death was coming, and God said to Moses, put lamb's blood on the doorpost, and I will pass over those houses. And that was a foreshadow to Jesus. Christianity is not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's about how much you can get under the blood of Jesus, how much you can be protected and covered by Jesus, how much he can be the center of your life and the covering of your life. When the temple was finished, the first thing they did was remember that God has made a way. And then Ezra teaches the people. In chapter 9, Ezra was torn apart because of sin committed around him. In this time, this was the sin of intermarriage. Now, it's not intermarriage like, like you and I here in our culture. The intermarriage here was not a race reference, but a God and worship reference. Sin pattern was, was established in the Old Testament where people would marry from another country and you would begin to take on the habits and spiritual practices of your spouse. So, so for example, intermarriage that I am for is anything related to ethnic race doesn't matter to me at all or the Bible. But here's something that does matter to the Bible in the New Testament. When you marry somebody who is not on the same spiritual page as you, things can go very, 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 very bad. And Ezra knows this. Ezra sees the power of this sin in their lives. Now, if you're unmarried, just hear this, please. The person that you marry will affect your spiritual life and trajectory more than any other human being in the world. More than your pastor more than your children, more than your neighbors, the person that you marry will determine the course of your spiritual walk. Now, this doesn't mean that you're stuck on one path. You can always work. You always strive, whether or not your spouse is or not. But that person that you marry can either be wind in your sails or an anchor at the bottom of the ocean. Married couples, you, we know this, right? No matter what it is, whether it's spirituality or, or just the way you are as a human being. You, your spouse can either be a person who constantly encourages, lifts you up, and brings the best out of you, or a person who brings you down and throws you into a tar pit. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I'm just saying that the reality of marriage is the person that you bind yourself to before God is going to steer the ship of your life. So if you're single, choose wisely. If you're married and you're thinking, I have an anchor, how do I get someone who is not an anchor, someone who doesn't hold me back spiritually, emotionally, socially, whatever it could be? You've got to go back to the altar and ask yourself the simple question, what's at the center of our life? Have we been rebuilding the exterior so we look and appear okay? We've added the kids, the turtles, and the dogs, and the house is painted, we meet all the things. Or have we started at the center at the altar and said, do we... Do we love Jesus together? Do we pray together? Do we both have a walk with God? Is he at the center of our lives? 
Because if not, it becomes actually very simple. It might sound hard, but a lot of marriages that have unraveled can be put together if you go all the way back to square one. And you remember what you said on the altar. You said, I'm here making this covenant to you and God to love you and serve you and make marriage all about him. And if you start there, start at the altar, then the exterior things begin to build out after that. Well, when Ezra prayed, it says in the passage we read, he wept and cast himself down. Now, I'm more of a Nehemiah guy. When Ezra was encountered with this great sin, he pulled out his own hair and wept and cried. Nehemiah strapped on his sword and just started smacking people, basically. So, so if you want to read the two books, Ezra's like, ah, oh, you guys, you're sinning again, you're sinning again. And Nehemiah's like, you're sinning again? It's a difference between your, if you're a kid or you remember childhood. You had the enforcer parent and then the nice parent, right? Or if you had double enforcer parents, I'm sorry. If you had double nice parents, we call you millennials, okay? Um, <laughs> too soon? Should I wait for the next generation to be born before that joke works? Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Spank your kids. Don't do that. Okay. So, so you have... You have Nehemiah who says, I'm just going to beat the sin out of you. You have Ezra who says, I'm going to cry the sin out of you. If, if your sin, however, does not make you weep, then you have too low of a view of your sin or too high of a view. You think you're better than you are. If your sin does not bring you to, to your knees in prayer, then you don't understand the depth of it. If you, if you, if you don't realize that the second glance is, the, the jealousy, the coveting, the anxiety are things that are disconnecting you from God. If you don't realize how tragic that is for your life, then, then you won't cry. But the moment that you realize, for example, and I've been using this sin a lot this week because I've been sensing it in my own life, anxiety. We know, like the Bible says, don't be anxious. So what do a lot of us do? We say, don't worry, be happy. Now the problem with that is that that's actually not something that gets us to the gospel of Jesus. And I've been so anxious. And one of these things that I, that I do that I learned many, many years ago now is that I want to find out what my sin is rooted in. Because the sin of lust, the sin of worry, the sin of anxiety, the sin of jealousy, those are the bad fruits of our life. The things that we can see that are bad, the things that our neighbors can see that are bad, these external sins. But if we just go around cutting off those fruits all day long, we can maybe look the tree a little bit better for a moment, but, it, but what do we have to deal with? Do we just deal with the bad fruit? No, because if it's still planted in bad roots, it will grow bad fruit again. So we have to ask the question, what is causing me to have anxiety? What is causing me to continue to lust? What is causing me to be prideful or judgmental or whatever your sin is up in this tree? And you've got to go from the fruit down to the root. And you've got to say, what am I not believing about God what am I believing wrongly about God that's leading to these sinful things? Now, the anxiety one I've been using because I've been, I've been just overwhelmed lately. In the past few months, it's been a roller coaster of worry, 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 no worry, worry, no worry, 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 no worry. You know, for, for various reasons. My home life, you know, I found out that my, my oldest kid um, used a very bad word. And, uh, and I don't like bad words. And he lied to me for a couple of days. And then all of a sudden I remembered, wait, we have cameras over at the park where he was accused of using this bad word. So I know the guy who has the camera thing. So I said, Jackson, I'm going to go talk to, to Mr. Javier 
and I'm going to get the camera footage. Is there anything you want to tell me before I see the camera footage? Guess what he did? Confessed like a little sucker. He had lied to me for days. Days. He had straight-faced me. It's like he had been built to lie. It's like he knew what he was doing. He lied, lied, lied. And as soon as the camera question came, I thought, I'm putting cameras in every room of my house. But, but if I do that, guess what he's going to do? He's going to guard the external things. He's going to make sure he's chopping off the fruit so that I don't see it. But the sinful root is still there. The fact that, that Jackson wants to lie to me for multiple days is still there until I got him to see why he was doing it. Until I could say, why are you lying? Oh, I'm afraid that you're going to spank me. Well, yeah, if you were afraid of that before, lying just ensured it. Metaphorically, for those of you who work in Child Protective Services. <laughs> now, now, he was afraid of being punished, afraid of getting spanked. And I told him, and I tell this to all of my children. Savannah doesn't get it yet. I don't know if Silas gets it. But I tell them, you, first you said this, then you did this to a kid, and then you lied to me for two days. And he's just still like, just don't spank me. Don't put me in time out. Don't take away my screen. And I said, you've done all these things. Now, I could just say, that's bad. <laughs> And then he'll say, okay, I'm equating doing bad things with getting physical pain, which is what spanking is for, spare the rod, spoil the child. But if I don't get to the heart of why he's doing these things, his fear of punishment, his desire to be approved of by others, Jackson wanted to be liked by his friends. They were goading him on as eight-year-olds do that are the size of fifth graders that he hangs out with. So he wanted to fit in. So I have to go all the way back. Okay, he doesn't believe that Jesus is all that he needs. He doesn't believe that he is loved by God to such a way that he doesn't need the love of his peers around him. He doesn't believe that the punishment for his sin is death and that he would literally die if God came back in the midst of sin apart from Christ. So we work through all those things again. And then, as we're working through those things, I'm just driving the sin drill into his heart. And I'm telling him, like, this is how bad you are. This is why Jesus had to die, Jackson. He had to die... Because you were saying these things in a hurtful way and trying to be approved of by others. He had to die because you lied to me for two days straight. Jesus had to die. And we've watched those video montages of the Passion of Christ where they have Jim Caviezel getting killed with emotional songs. I've, I've subjected my children to that because I'm a great parent. And, and he goes, like, you know, he did that because I lied? I'm like, yeah, because your lying is saying I'm disconnecting from the truth of you, God, because I don't believe that truth is right. I believe that my truth is right and your truth is wrong for this moment. And you're throwing that in God's face. And all of a sudden, his heart and his face that were afraid of just the pain began to get crushed by the weight of sin. And I saw sin begin to bury tears and then sink his heart. And then he just started to cry. And he said, I can't believe Jesus had to die. And I said, believe. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, yeah, he did. Now, what are you going to do about this? And then we went to the gospel. And then I hugged him. And I grounded him for a long time. And I took away a bunch of things. I told him he, he might have to pay for the swing that he broke. All of these things. But because at the end he got the gospel, he didn't leave dejected and broken and full of tears and crying. 
he was able to turn to Jesus and say, I'm, I'm so thankful that Jesus died for me. Ezra was stuck in the tear part. Ezra wept bitterly because of sin. Ezra wept bitterly even though the altar was done, the temple was done because the people had now returned, but they were not turning from their sin. Start with your sin today. Start asking, why am I sinning the way that I'm sinning? And find freedom from your sins when you can bring them to the foot of the cross, when you can bring them to the altar.